Good morning. Uh, my name's Tony. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Benjamin's going to be preaching from this morning. It's from John chapter 5, verses 16 through 29, and it's on page 837 in the Pew Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's word. Well, a quick thing before I pray and then preach. Um, if you've not signed up for the women's retreat, I'd love to encourage you to do that and not only sign up, but uh, sign up, maybe even bring a friend. It's near the end of March and there's signups and more information. The speaker this year is Glenna Marshall. Um, and if I said Glenna and I were good friends, that would be way too much. But if I said we were acquaintances, that might be more accurate. We're in a similar writing group uh, for the last few years. And I wrote a book once, and I wanted someone who was big time to write something nice about what I had written and put on the cover, and she did. So we, I put it there. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, I won't be there um, at the retreat, the women's retreat. But um, if I could, I would. I think it will be very encouraging and and faithful Bible teaching, so consider signing up and uh, maybe even for a friend. Well, let's pray and then we'll study this passage together. Heavenly Father, your words that you are spoken here are, are, have this language of marveling. Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would not be indifferent to who you are, what that means for our lives. 
Lord, give us ears to hear, spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see that we would indeed marvel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's say you have a certain neighbor, and this neighbor tends to walk his dog in front of your house, and as this neighbor walks his dog in front of your house, the dog poops right there on your edge, and and never at your neighbor's house, like always your house, and there's a bag, and he picks it up, and all of that, but still, right? Like, why your house? And you're mulling this over and frustrated by it, and then one day he decides not to pick it up. And you think, okay, like, am I going to have to do something here? (laughs) I mean, I'm a good religious person, but like, (laughs) starting to get upset. Then it happens again, and you realize this, this was not an accident. The situation keeps escalating, and before you get a chance to do something, next time the neighbor walks up your little sidewalk, goes straight to your front porch, and square in the middle of your doormat, dog leaves a present. And now you're not home, but you, get the, you have the fancy doorbell ring video camera thing. It sends you the video, you watch the whole thing, you show your coworkers, you post it on Facebook. You, to say you're fuming mad would be an understatement because you're going to call the police and they're going to do something or you're going to kill somebody. Now, this isn't a sermon about loving your neighbors, although that might have made a good introduction if it were. We're in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is telling stories about Jesus' life and his teaching, and specifically even in this passage, his words. If you're here, just coming, we're about a quarter of the way into the book. And this morning we're picking up story midstream, so there's a story already in place. And I'm just going to be preaching verses 19 through 29, but I started our reading in verse 16 for the reason that something is escalating. And it is crucial for us to see this escalation for us to understand the significance of what's happening. So let me read again verses 16 to 19, excuse me, 16 to 18. So if you have a Bible, just leave it open. John chapter 5, we're going to be all over kind of John chapter 5, so you'll want to see it there for yourselves. John chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. Notice the escalation. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. You see the escalation? Jesus does things on the Sabbath, which is why they, quote, persecute him. And I'll spend more time telling you in a moment what he did on the Sabbath and was doing on the Sabbath and why that was such a problem. But then it moves from persecution to now, quote, seeking all the more to kill him. Perhaps my opening about the neighbor and the dog poop doesn't work so well. You don't want to press that illustration too far because then Jesus is, in this illustration, the neighbor, which maybe is not the best of looks here for a preacher, but yet, as irreverent as that is, as irreverent as that might be, it pushes you and I to consider who do we think Jesus is? How do we receive him? 
the title that gets so often used of Jesus Christ in, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord. Lords don't ask permission. Lords do what they want, when they want. And in the world of the New Testament, in the times of the New Testament, the phrase that was used so often in their day was, Caesar is Lord. So when they say Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus is Lord, this was a charged statement. This was not neutral. And it's fair to say the good Jewish religious leaders of the day did not want Jesus as their Lord. If Jesus was Lord, then, well, their life, they couldn't be Lord of their lives, which is a perennial problem for all of us. And as irreverent as it may seem, to put it the way I put it, the religious leaders took Jesus to be someone who's pooping on their porch and messing up their lives. They heard Jesus' words, his claims to be Lord, not as giving life, but taking life, their life, the way they wanted to have it on their terms. And he had to stop. So that's why things escalated. So the question is, how do you receive? How do you receive Jesus as Lord? How do you understand the absolute authority of King Jesus over every aspect of your life? Is the advent of Jesus into your life a blessing to you? Is it life to you? Or is his arrival, his showing up in your life, more of an intrusion. Well, I'm speaking to people who, for most of us, we love God, love His Word. Unless we love the one God sent. We love Jesus. We want to follow Him. That, that wasn't the case, though, with Jesus' audience who first received this, maybe we would call it a monologue. And I don't want to steal too much from Ben's sermon next week. He's going to continue the words of Jesus here, but, but just to bring a few lines and to give you a sense of who is Jesus talking to when he says these words. Two lines. Verse 38. You do not have God's word abiding in you. That's what he says of them. And then this one too, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. <laughs> the word of God doesn't abide in them. The love of God is not a part of them. Ouch, right? That's a tough crowd. That's who Jesus is speaking to. But there is something these religious leaders see rightly. There is something they see rightly. They see that Jesus doesn't intend to just slide into your life and have nothing change. These religious leaders see rightly that to have Jesus move into your life means that there's a home renovation project that's going to be undertaken. Or we might say, to have Jesus move into your life is to hang out the banner over your life that says, under new management. And Christians, those who hear his voice and love God, love to be under new management. But that's, that's getting ahead. Let me, let me back up. So, before this monologue from Jesus, verses really 19 through into the chapter, but we'll go through verse 29. Before this monologue, there's a story, and Michael Aiken was preaching this story last week, but I, I want to go back into it just a little bit so we, we have the, the stage set for the words that Jesus says. So, so what was this story? 
Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and then he leaves Jerusalem, and then chapter 5, he's back now in Jerusalem. He had gone north, and he's now back in Jerusalem. And we read of a man who's sick, and he's been sick, evidently, for almost four decades. He can't walk. And there was this popular belief at the time that there was this special pool near the temple, and that an angel, he would stir the pool, I don't know how that would happen exactly, but there was this belief that it would happen, and, and when it happens, you'd be watching, and you, if you were the first person to get in the pool, then you'd be healed. Now, I believe supernatural things, supernatural healings can take place. They happen. But none of that about the pool or the angels is in the Bible or in the Old Testament. So, to whatever extent... There really was a special pool and an angel did stir it and people actually did get well or to whatever extent it was just a bunch of superstitious baloney. I don't know. We don't know. But evidently some people believe that maybe even this man, which is why he hangs out there all day, but as you could expect, he's desperate. And even the whisper of a cure is attractive to him, yet he's too slow. He can't get down to the pool. because I mean, if he does anything, all he can do is crawl with his elbows into the pool. Let me read verses 5 through 9. One day there was a man who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Like really healed? Like deeply healed? That's, that's what teases out across the story. It's not just physical healing that's going to happen here. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. It's good news, right? Well, then what does the next part, it's a paragraph break, but what does verse 9 say? How does it continue? Now that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh, right? <laughs> there Jesus goes again. Aren't there like six other days? Like, why does he got to do it on the Sabbath? Doesn't he know that taking up your mat, taking up your bed on the Sabbath, is a, it's a violation of all these extra super important Jewish laws that they had set up. Doesn't he know? Oh, he knows. He knows what he's doing. I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but, but here's what happened. Jesus slips away to avoid the pandemonium that would have followed the healing. The religious leaders, they see the guy with the mat, the bed, it's like a mat, it's not a huge bed, but it's like this mat bed thing that he rolls up. And, and they want to know who's carrying the mat on the Sabbath. And you notice, if your eyes were like looking at the passage, you notice they say nothing of the healing. Why are you carrying your mat, your bed, they ask. Some guy told me to carry my mat, he says. What guy told you to carry your mat, they ask. No mention, no question of the healing. They keep focusing on the mat, which indicates something of the deadness they have to marveling at God's sovereign grace. It'd be like going to Jesus going into the hospital, and there's all these beds, and, and, and there's people in coma. Jesus goes to one guy who's been in a coma long time, and he goes to him and he says, get up. Take out your IV, 
go home. And then the guy, he leaves the hospital and he takes his paper mask. And he just dances out of the hospital, hooting and hollering, healed and happy. And then the security guards are totally dead to the marvel of a guy who had been in a coma for years and with one word it's changed. And the guards, all they can do is demand to know, why is he wearing a mask? I told him to wear his mask. And if you were watching this, you're watching the guards, you're watching the healing, you'd want to say to the guards, did you notice the thing about the guy who was about to die and then he's alive? I'm sure he's going to be happy to wear the mask whenever he comes to the hospital. Important to wear the mask. You're going to wear the mask. Like He'll do that next time he comes in, but don't you see? He looks really healthy. Now, in their defense, being the Sabbath police, as Michael so helpfully referred to them, was part of their job. The people of God had made a mess of, of so many things, so many parts of God's law. And so the religious leaders, they, they, they make a bunch of extra laws to ensure that if the people didn't break those extra laws, then they wouldn't have broken God's law. It, it, it's sort of like owning a gun in the sense that um, no one will do ever, anything bad ever with a gun if you take the gun, put it in a gun safe, put it, the gun safe in the basement, and build concrete brick wall around the gun safe, and don't put a wall and a door on the brick wall that holds the gun and the gun safe in the basement, right? Like, then no one will ever do anything bad. That's what, like, it started with this good concern, like, responsible gun ownership, right? That's a phrase. These are all political things. I don't care about mass or guns at all this morning. I'm not making any statements. But I'm just using them as illustrations. But, like, you take that and you protect it safe. What starts as a good concern, you, you realize it can become ridiculous. They became ridiculous. And Jesus knew so he pokes him. And now we're back at verses 16 and 18. And this is why the Jews were persecuting him. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now and I'm working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself Equal with God. Now, here comes the monologue from Jesus, at least the first part. Ben will cover part two next week. If you're a good Jewish person, and someone has taken your words to mean that you are equating yourself with God, what do you do? You're terrified. You walk that misunderstanding back as fast as your little words can carry you. Consider how the Ten Commandments begin. Prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment one. You shall have no other gods before me. It goes on from there. Exodus 20, verses 2 to 3. So if you're a good Jewish person and you even suspect that someone has even remotely thought that you were claiming to be more than a mere man, let alone claiming to be equal with God, what would your monologue sound like? I'll tell you, it doesn't sound like what Jesus said. I'm going to read it all. 19 to 29. Hear these words of Jesus again. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show you, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Talk about that in a moment. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Fascinating, right? I pictured it like someone juggling swords and knives and a flaming torch. It's like, don't marvel at this. Which is a way to say, like, this is crazy. But he's saying, don't even marvel at this. This isn't hard for me. Look what he says. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He means for us to marvel. Christians can often talk of wanting more from the Bible about the depths of God's godness. That is, we often want more on the inner workings of the Trinity, but when we have depth and exploration of the Trinity from Jesus himself, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we, we don't know exactly what even to do with it because it's at once so wild and wonderful. I mean, each sentence deserves a sermon. But what you need to see most clearly is this. When Jesus is accused of claiming to be God, he doesn't walk that back. Oh, oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant at all. I never meant to apply that. The thing about my father working, well, we're all working, you know. No. No, he doubles down. First, he claims to do exactly what the father does. Then he claims to give life to whom he wills. He has sovereign choice. He claims that all authority to judge has been given into his hands. He claims that if you don't honor him, you don't honor God. Read that part again, second half of verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Marvel at what he's saying. It it doesn't matter how nice and winsome you are about your Christian life. The day is coming and is now here where to believe, verse 23, is explosively controversial and offensive in our secular society. To say that if you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor God means that all Jewish people and all Muslims, just for example, don't honor God. 
That is explosively controversial. And it's not my words, those are Jesus' words. He doesn't walk that back, he doubles it down. And marvel at his claim about the resurrection. The hour is coming, Jesus says, when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What? Everyone who has ever lived and has now died will one day obey his voice and get up out of the grave and be faced with either heaven or hell? That's what he's saying. Caesar will obey Lord Jesus and come out of his grave? Yeah. President Lincoln and Washington will obey him? Your great-great-great-grandmother will obey him and come up out of the grave? And you, if you one day go into the grave before he returns, you'll also come out of, out of the grave? Call your name? What, what power? What authority? What lordship? Now, I'm going to wrap this up soon, but not yet, not yet. Two issues first. Put our thinking caps on for a few minutes, one page. If there seems to be two resurrections in this passage, it's because there are. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that whoever hears my voice and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So like you have it now, begins now, goes on forever. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the first resurrection, which Jesus says is now here. Then later he speaks of all who are in their graves, they come forth either to life or a second death. That's the second resurrection. Now, there are a handful of different ways to understand these resurrections, this first resurrection specifically. Some might see the physical resurrections that Jesus did um, as this, the hour is coming is now here, and he does a couple actual resurrections. So there's a whole chapter to devote to this, John chapter 11. We read from it earlier in the worship service where Jesus raises Lazarus. I don't think that's what he means, though. I think verse 24 and 25 are talking about something more sweeping, I think verses 24 and 25 speak to our spiritual resurrections that take place anytime someone hears the words of Jesus from the heart, that is, they hear Jesus with spiritual ears, and those who hear come to life spiritually. To read it again, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, truly, truly. This seems present tense. It's happening now. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming. It's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's a really good parallel with this back in chapter 4. It's been a long time since it's been chapter 4 because we took a break. But Jesus is in this conversation with the woman in the well and they're talking about, okay, is the, where, when, when will we worship the Father on this mountain or that mountain? When will it happen? Jesus looks at the woman says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. It's chapter 4. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you'll worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here. Sound familiar? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. Chapter 4, verses 21 23. Now you get the sense. 
that a present tense experience of Jesus seeking worshipers and a present tense, ongoing sense of Jesus speaking words that get heard with spiritual ears. Was it, was it matter, right? Okay, this sounds important. What does it matter? Why is this first resurrection, we think of it as spiritual resurrections coming to life in the heart, following Jesus, that happened then and continues now. Why does that matter? Here's why. Marvel at the hope. Marvel at the hope of this. It means that in any situation, no matter how bad, how spiritually dark, or how even spiritually dead, it means that Jesus can speak a word like, take up your mat, walk. And in a moment, Jesus can cause life to grow out of death. What a hope. You don't know anyone so far from God that God can't speak a word and change it like that. That's the first issue. One more. First issue is spiritual resurrections. This life happened in Jesus' time and continue now followed by physical resurrections someday for everyone. So here's the second issue. It's with that second physical resurrection. You've got to look at the words. In the final kind of phrase here, what does Jesus say? Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their tombs, so this one he says is not here, but it's coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If you've done good, you get life. If you've done evil, you get judgment. Wait, what? Do you see the wording there? How does that relate to the rest of the Bible, which says the opposite? Doesn't Jesus give life to the undeserving? Isn't that, aren't we good news people? Isn't that what Christians believe that's why we call it the gospel the good news that jesus saves the undeserving isn't that what the rest of the bible says but here it seems like you get heaven if you've done good and you get judgment if you've done evil so what's going on it's really important you need to know something else that the bible teaches to understand this and that's the power of spiritual conversion the power of spiritual resurrection. Like, it's a powerful thing. The, the connection, according to the Bible, that makes sense of this, the connection is that, according to the Bible, between Jesus converting someone and saving them from judgment is so strong that it's impossible for a person to hear spiritually the voice of God and resurrect their hearts and not begin to change. Like that connection is so powerful that God can look at the final judgment and raise people out of the grave and say it's according to good works. But the question is, what are those good works according to? They're according to the change that happened or didn't happen in a person's life. And I know that's a few steps. Let me say it a couple more ways. When Jesus moves into your life, he undertakes a renovation project. That's what he does. He hangs out the banner and says, under new management. And he begins to change things. And maybe not as fast as we would like. Maybe not in the specific ways we would like. 38 years this guy is waiting. But one decade goes by and then another. And God's people become holy. And happy in Jesus. 
I, as one of your pastors, testify to seeing over and over and over again. Jesus changing people. Jesus changing you. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, the reason it depends on this is because this depends on this. And that's the challenge of the passage, isn't it? Are you hearing his voice? Have you found him in this life? Has he found you? Is the lordship of Jesus a wonderful, marvelous thing to you? And if so, here's the encouragement. If so, what begins in this life, he will see to completion in the next when he calls your name. And that is good. Invite the music team to come forward so we can have a time of response through communion and singing. And I'll give us some instructions about how that will work. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we so often, even those who love your word and we believe by your grace have your word and love among us, we, we see less and know less and feel less than we ought. And so we ask for more, that you would come and work among us in new and fresh ways. That we would be holy and happy in Jesus and that you would be changing us from one degree of glory to the next as we behold your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. In Jesus' monologue, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He can say that because on the cross, Jesus took all the punishment that belongs to us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who have been raised by Jesus. We have, in the words of Jesus, been given eternal life because he swallowed our eternal death. And so there are times when communion celebrations at church, they're, they're more of Good Friday celebrations. Body of Christ broken, blood of Christ shed, it's messy, it's sober, it's costly. And there are times, there are times when communion celebration should be a celebration, more of an Easter morning more of a resurrection, more of a time when communion is for us joyful and hopeful, a time for us to remember that what he begins, he finishes. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to a church about communion, he says that as the church gathers and takes communion together, they, they proclaim, there's a little bread, a little juice, they proclaim to one another the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until, quote, he comes again. This morning, we remind one another, he comes again, and it's going to be good. Different churches have different understandings of who should participate in communion at our church. Um, communion is open to anyone who, who says, I, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Anyone who says their sins have been forgiven by him. Anyone who hears his voice and loves that. So if that's you, communion's for you. If, if, if for whatever reason you don't feel comfortable participating this morning, um, you're welcome to sit in your seats, think, reflect, pray. No one will think anything of that. No one will probably hardly even notice. 
In just a moment, the ushers will come forward and the worship team will play a song over us. Um, the usher will drop a piece of bread into your hand. It's just it's gluten-free bread and just juice, <laughs> but it means so much more. Just If you'd hang on to it and then um, we'll all be served together. If you can't come forward, um, can't get up, I'd be happy to bring it to you. Just make eye contact with me. If our ushers could come forward now.